Tonight's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 22, 1 to 23, if you've got it. All right. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, "'Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover.' Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Thanks, Megan. It's good to be here and it's a privilege to be able to share from God's word. Um, we are, as, been, has, as has been said already, continuing in Luke's gospel. And, and this term we've started off with Jesus entering Jerusalem, riding on a colt, making a proclamation that was unmissable, that he is the king of the Jews. And then we get to today's section, which I, we very rarely think about apart from when we're doing communion. Uh, perhaps you've actually never thought about this passage in the context of what's come before it, that Jesus has claimed to be king, that there's growing opposition to his statement about who he is, that he's just spoken about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming of the uh, judge at the end of the world. But having read those things and thought through them over the last few weeks, they actually provide the immediate context for what we're going to think about now. And I think it's kind of unique because this is a passage that we probably think, yeah, yeah, I already know what this passage says and we already do it every month on the second Sunday of the, of the month. Uh, and so there's nothing really to learn here. I think, as always, when we come to passages that are super familiar, that we think we've got a grasp on, those are the ones that are most necessary for us to trust in God. So I'm going to pray for us and invite you to do that with me.
Jesus, we thank you that you are the king and that you have given us a meal by which to remember you. And so as we spend time thinking about a very, very familiar passage, uh, we ask that by your spirit you give us new insights into what it's saying to us and therefore bring about the change in us so that we would respond to it as we should. We pray this in your name for your glory. Amen. Now, it might come as a bit of a surprise to you that my wife, Christy, is actually the artistic one in our family. Uh, it may not come as a surprise at all. Uh, and, and I do know that this is one of the world's most recognisable paintings. Da Vinci's The Lord's Supper was not actually originally painted on a canvas and placed in an art gallery. It was painted on the wall of the dining room of an Italian monastery. It's about four and a half metres high, about nine metres wide, and it's there to this day. Sadly, it very, very quickly deteriorated right from the start when da Vinci painted it, and it's had to be restored multiple times in its 500-year history. But in some senses, I think that da Vinci's painting symbolises so much of our relationship to the original meal. If we had a professional photographer who had been there at the dinner taking photos, we could compare it, place it side by side like one of those spot the difference puzzles. And what we would immediately notice is that the disciples and Jesus are seated or standing in this picture, not reclining as they would have in the actual photo. They're all arranged on one side of the table. Again, incredibly unlikely. It wouldn't have happened. There's a lovely background. In a city the size of Jerusalem, there would have been houses all around this house where they're eating. There are only 12 disciples there. Quite probably, there are actually even more present. These are just the apostles. They're all wearing shoes. At a meal in that culture, it's just something that you would never, ever do. There's hardly any food on the table when it was a feast, one of the biggest feasts of the year. And Jesus is remarkably Italian looking. <laughs> Though, of course, he was Jewish. Now, there's a funny story. Um, da Vinci was uh, asked to paint this painting and had a sponsor who, who paid for him to do it. And he was very, very slow at painting. He was doing other jobs as he was doing this. And over a number of years, the people at the monastery got pretty fed up with this and said, come on, Da Vinci, can't you hurry up and, and get this painting finished? And so there's a guy called the Prior who's having this conversation with Da Vinci. And, uh, and so Da Vinci went above his head to the guy who had actually sponsored it and said, I go down to the market for my inspiration for the, the faces of the various apostles and unless your prior backs off, I'm going to use his face as the basis for Judas. <laughs> True story, apparently. Now, now, my main point is not that da Vinci got it wrong, but far more importantly, that every time we celebrate this meal, we've accepted or even made little changes to it ourselves, like, like a game of Chinese whispers that's been going on for 2,000 years. We've passed on the message, but with little changes and tweaks along the way. One tiny example of, of what normally is an unnoticed change is that we call it communion or the Last Supper, using the American term for the evening meal. It's not supper as in the little bit of a snack that you have at night after you've maybe had dinner, but if I instead called it the last dinner or the last tea, it just doesn't sound quite right, does it? 
Now, some of these changes probably don't matter, but some of them are incredibly important. And so tonight we're going to ask, what meaning did Jesus give to this meal? What, what meaning was there for us to be understanding from it? Now, the passage is broken up into three scenes, almost like a movie. Scene one, the background, verses one to six. Scene two, the preparation. And then scene three, the meal itself in verses 14 to 23. So what meaning did Jesus give to this meal? Verse 1 begins a new section. The entry into Jerusalem is followed up by another bookend when we got to the end of the prophecy last week. And this previous section had been centred on Jesus' role as king and has primarily taken place within the temple grounds. Now, this new section begins with the statement that Passover was approaching marking the beginning of our scene one, the background. Passover already had a very long and important history, being one of the three most important festivals that every Jew celebrated every year. Passover was the evening meal at the start of a week-long celebration in Jerusalem, which first one identifies as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they normally ate leavened bread, but just for this week, you got rid of all of the yeast and you ate flat bread. So Passover, as the name indicates, recalls the angel of death that passed over the homes of the Israelite. If a lamb was sacrificed and its blood painted on the doorposts and the lintel, the firstborn son in that house didn't die. And so every year since their escape from Egypt, every single Israelite, had participated in this meal of remembrance of that incredible day of salvation, of rescue, of life in place of death. They got together with their family in Jerusalem and celebrated the tradition which was passed on to the next generation and the next and the next. They had a script in the scroll of Exodus that told them exactly what to say what food to prepare, how to dress, even what to do with the leftovers. There was absolutely zero space for innovation, for doing seafood instead of turkey, as some of us do these days at Christmas. Passover was a very carefully orchestrated meal designed to remember the past, a commemoration of what God had done in rescuing Israel from Egypt and making them his people. And so therefore, at a time which should have been a time of rejoicing, abounding with gratitude, we get verse 2, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. This is the third time in fairly quick succession that Luke has told us this fact, that the leaders are scared of the people that they lead. This leadership is and knows they are treading a tricky tightrope of popular opinion. The leaders are growing desperate to get rid of Jesus. But their hatred of Jesus is matched by the crowd's delight in Jesus. Unwilling to relinquish their power, these leaders need to get Jesus away from the crowd so that they can get rid of him once and for all. But there just hasn't been any opportunities like that. This missing need of theirs is unexpectedly met in the offer from Judas, one of Jesus' inner circle. We're not told here what Judas's motivation was, 
But clearly there was an involvement of Satan, which is something that we'll come back to later and think a little about. But the main point from scene one that Luke seems to be wanting to get us across is preparing us for the fact that Jesus' enemies want to get him alone in order that they can get rid of him. And Judas is willing to facilitate that taking place at Passover time. If this was a movie, then right now the scary music is starting to rise in volume. Jesus has claimed to be king, but there is an ominous plot afoot to get rid of him somehow at this time of Passover. A trap has been set, and it looks very likely that Jesus is going to walk straight into it. So set up with these important facts that we therefore are supposed to watch out for in the coming scenes, in verse 7 there's a change in scene. The camera zooms in to begin our section 2, the preparation. In verse 1, the feast was near. Verse 7, the day has come. While verses 1 to 6, account of people scheming behind his back, may have set us up to think that Jesus is the unaware victim, we're now presented with a contrasting picture. It is the day that the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, verse 7. This word had to or necessary shows up a number of times in the book of Luke, and it ties what would otherwise just be a a relatively unimportant detail into a complex, all-encompassing plan. This is not a random day. It is the predetermined day on which it is necessary for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. Now, as people who are already familiar with where this story is going, we know that this has a much deeper meaning than that tradition required the death of the lamb so that people could eat lamb that night. This is how the lamb of God is going to take away the sins of the world. It is far more than a hint. It's not subtle at all. But Luke continues to wait to actually make his main point explicit. He continues on with further details. In verse 8, Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover meal. Two leaders are sent to find a man carrying a jar of water. Don't think little glass jar walking through the city. carrying. He's carrying a big jug of water because they don't have water at home. He's got to go out to the well, bring back the water from the day. So you can see this guy carrying this big jar of water. Which again, for the original leaders, would have raised an eyebrow. Because from what we know of Jewish culture, it was the women who collected water and it was women who prepared the meals. And so here, Peter and John exemplify how Jesus' disciples should act. They obey their king. When they're asked to do something that many would consider strange or beneath them, they just do it. Humility is a mark not just of the leader, but of those who are led And so in stark contrast with Judas, who is working out his own ways to to get something for himself, Peter and John are doing something for others at the command of their king. And so this passage is not actually primarily about the disciples' response, but the master that they obey, which is exactly what the incident goes on to reveal. At a time when every single Jew in the country had come to Jerusalem and you would be hard-pressed to find a parking spot for your donkey, 
Jesus knows of a large room that's free, just happens to be available on the night where they can eat Passover together. Now, is this prearranged or is it just supernatural knowledge? I don't think that it actually really matters. What Luke emphasises, as he did when Jesus sent two disciples to fetch the colt that he rode in Jerusalem, that as Peter and John go, all of the details are exactly as Jesus said they would be. In the Old Testament, the God-given way of testing whether you should listen to a, a prophet was does their prophecy come true? And having prophesied the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, the final judgment, hear Jesus' words about much more mundane things are precisely fulfilled, exactly as he said they would be. It is proof that his words about other things are trustworthy too. But we shouldn't think that this means that Jesus just has universal knowledge. He actually has universal control. Jesus is not the victim of a plot. He is the initiator of the action. Jesus hasn't been blindsided. This is all a part of that all-encompassing plan. And so then in verse 14, the focus narrows down even further. Verse 1, Passover was approaching. Verse 7, the day came. Verse 14, the hour came. This, t- this time marker opens up what we've termed scene three, the meal. But the hour's coming is not merely to indicate it's dinner time. This is the moment that everything has been waiting for, like a photo with a, a blurred background that draws your eye into the focal point. This Passover meal is what everything has been leading to. And when I say the focal point, I don't mean just of this chapter or this passage. This is going to clarify the whole of the gospel, what Jesus has been doing for all these years. If you get this, if you understand it, then you get everything. If you miss it, you miss it all. Which explains, I think, why Jesus is so eager, verse 15, to eat this Passover meal that he fervently desired to eat with his disciples, another translation puts it. Now, for those of you who were privileged enough to attend the men's barbecue last Saturday, by midday we were all pretty eager to eat, right? Uh, The smell had just stirred up those juices that said, I am really hungry. And it tasted even better than it smelled. Uh, I got the privilege of continuing to eat smoked sausages for the rest of the week. Uh, it was very, very good. Uh, but, but I'm actually very confident that here in this passage, Jesus' eagerness is not referring to his hunger or even the joy that accompanies an annual get-together with good friends for a meal. This Passover, not any Passover, this Passover was to be like no other. For one... It would be the last meal that Jesus eats before he suffers, verse 15 says. And he would get to eat it with those who were closest to him. Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy gave strict instructions that this meal was to only be eaten with your family. And so to eat with his disciples rather than his biological family probably confirms what he said back in chapter 8, verse 21, that his real family are not those with genetic links, but those who hear and do the word of God. 
Now, while that's a probable implied point, in verse 16, Jesus himself gives the explicit reason for his keenness. Have a look again at verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, depending on which Bible you've got, uh, you may have a little marker and then a footnote at the bottom that says some manuscripts omit the word again, and that's why I've put it in brackets up here. Why that's important is that I think when we normally read this passage, we think that Jesus is speaking about the future, of the great feast that we will eat with him after he has returned in glory. Jesus ate Passover on that day, but next time he eats communion, it will have its full meaning in the new heavens and the new earth. The future is clearly emphasised in both Matthew and Mark's account of this meal, if you go and look at them later. But verse 16 in Luke more literally says, I cannot eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, which is followed up by verse 18, which literally says, I cannot drink it until the kingdom of God comes. What Luke says a little differently to Matthew and Mark is that as Jesus eats this Passover meal, its true meaning is revealed for the very, very first time. That as he eats, the kingdom has come. It's not waiting. It's not near. It is here. Which, if you stop and reflect, is quite an extraordinary thing to say. It was a logical conclusion from the Jewish scriptures that the whole purpose for which Passover was given was to look back to the past. You could say that Passover is by nature a rearview mirror festival. It commemorated what God had done in the past for his people, that he had come to the rescue, that he had delivered them from slavery and made them into a nation, that while the firstborn of Egypt all died, none of their own did back then because of the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. But what was hidden in plain sight for about 1,300 years of celebrations was that Passover had always been looking forward. The sacrifice of a lamb in the place of the firstborn was only a picture looking forward to the sacrifice of God's own firstborn son. A perfect, spotless lamb would die to rescue people from a slavery far, far worse than Egyptian slavery. Blood would cover over God's people so that they didn't need to die. Israel had very, very strict instructions of how to commemorate Passover and failure to follow those instructions to the letter meant that you were separated, excluded from the community. But what they'd been unaware of the whole time was that they were being prepared to understand the meaning of something that was yet to take place. Passover was a model, an illustration, a shadow, a signpost pointing to the future so that the meaning of Jesus' death could be understood. The blood of a one-year-old lamb could never be an adequate substitute for our sin against our Creator. And at this meal, this Passover, Jesus finally got to put the last piece into the puzzle so that all humanity could finally understand what God's rescue plan was. There's no wonder he was so eager to eat 
And so Jesus does something that if he wasn't God would be outrageous. He takes a long-held tradition and repurposes it. Or better still, he explains the full meaning it had always contained and had been preparing God's people to understand. Have a look at verse 19. And he, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, which is exactly what we're going to do in just a minute. And you guys have the special privilege over the morning service in that you've got real bread and juice is not in a little cup where you pull the foil lid off it. Uh, But before we do it, I think it's actually worth thinking a little further about what the disciples experienced at that moment when Jesus said this. Traditions, as we all know, are deeply ingrained by nature of being traditions. We do things a particular way because that's how it's always been done, or at least that's how it feels. And so if I said this ring on my finger indicates that I'm a member of the Wheat Bix Eaters Club, pretty sure that you would all scoff. What a load of nonsense. It's a symbol that you got married. It's precious and never-ending, a symbol of your love for your wife. But did you know that Christian weddings only adopted this symbol about 900 AD? And then it was only a ring for the wife. Men have only worn wedding rings for a measly 100 years. Clearly there is absolutely no biblical basis to the exchanging of rings, and yet it is almost an unquestioned tradition. When you compare that, that by the time Jesus changed the meaning of the bread and the wine, Israel had been repeating an unchanging tradition for 1,300 years, and it had been given to them by God, you begin to get a feel for the shockwaves that were felt in the upper room that night. God himself, through Moses, had told Israel what to do and exactly what it meant. And then Jesus comes along and says that rather than eating flatbread for a week to remind you of the urgency with which your ancestors fled Egypt, as you break bread, remember that this is my body given for you. It is not the bread of affliction as Deuteronomy 16 verse 3 had always been understood, to talk about the affliction of God's people. It is the bread of Jesus' unique affliction. Escape from Egypt was big, but my sacrifice is much bigger. Passover was a temporary preparatory lesson so that you could understand the giving of my body. So remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' death as sacrifice for us is the focal point of the gospel. It explains why he came and taught and did miracles and healed and did all those other things so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. Now, over the ensuing centuries, there have been many debates about what Jesus' statement actually means. Does it demand that do this means that we should only celebrate communion once a year as the Jews celebrate Passover once a year? Or as others argue, must we do it every week or perhaps even every single time that Christians get together and share a meal? Must it be bread? Do we have to use unleavened bread or or must it only be one loaf? Does bread transform into the real body 
of Jesus when someone prays a special prayer? Must it be served from silver trays with doilies on them, served by elders or deacons from behind a stately wooden table? Now, some people probably will disagree with me, but I think that the fact that so little is said about the method of celebrating means that we have been given significant freedom to be flexible on both frequency and format. One life, multiple wafers. Doesn't matter. Pre-cut or a loaf broken by the person leading out the front. It's actually irrelevant. What we learn from this passage that is absolutely non-negotiable is why are you doing this? Does the way that you celebrate this meal help you reflect on the fact that Jesus' body was given for you? The human body that Jesus took on to become like us in every way. The body that was beaten and then hung on a cross to intentionally causing excruciating pain that would end in death. That body was given for you. We all needed a perfect substitute. And Jesus was willing to be it. If you have recognised your need for a substitute to die in your place for your sin, then we are now going to take some bread and then we're going to eat it together. Now, hopefully you can logically see that if you are not yet a Christian, then this is not something that you can or should take part in. This is a commemoration for Jesus' disciples, an opportunity for any who call him Lord, to eat in memory of him. I'm going to pray for him, and then people are going to bring around the bread. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the master teacher. You understand your disciples perfectly, and you know that we're forgetful. You know that we get distracted and lose focus. You know that we end up going off on sidetracks and tangents. And so you gave us a meal by which we could regularly remember what you have done in our place. We thank you so much that as the Lord of glory, eternally existent, you chose to take on a body to become a man so that you could die for mankind. We are so grateful. And so as we eat together, enable us to really reflect and remember what you have done by giving your body for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Feel free to go ahead straight away and eat the bread, but as you grab the cup, just hang on to that because we will reflect a little bit more on that before we take it together. I joke that we're privileged people because we didn't have to eat cardboard wafers, but we really are privileged people that we have been given a meal that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. Verse 20 goes on to say, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, whether da Vinci was right and each disciple had their own individual cup or whether they passed around one common cup, we actually don't know. But again, what is most important is the meaning that Jesus gave it. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Ever since the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Israel had been waiting for a new covenant, a new binding agreement, a, a new contract for how they related to their rescuer. 
a better arrangement which wasn't hampered by humankind's inability to obey, one in which the Lamb of God had kept all of the requirements, satisfying completely every necessity. What was needed to enter into this new covenant? To accept the free gift. I think it's a very helpful tradition that we all wait until everyone has a cup. It's intended to signify our common need and the provision for all of us equally. And so again, if you have trusted in Jesus, then you don't need to peel back. I'm going to pray for us and we will drink together. The means by which we are welcomed into God's family. Let's pray. Perfect Lord Jesus, the one who was without blood originally but took on human flesh and blood and you didn't hold on to it and hold it so precious that you weren't willing to shed it. You gave up your lifeblood so that we could have life. We thank you so much that our covenant is not one which requires us to do but to trust. We thank you so much that you have done everything for us by dying in our place. And so we drink now in celebration of the new covenant which we have been welcomed into that welcomes us into your family and makes us one with you. We thank you in your name. Amen. Let's drink together in thankfulness. Now, for completeness it in, uh, and in closing, we need to take note of verses 21 to 23. Uh, we thought about should these sit with next week's passage or do they actually sit better with this directly? And I think that having declared the most magnificent summary of why he came, giving us a meal to ongoingly remember, explain and commemorate the most meaningful sacrifice that will ever be made, it's some way is surprising that Jesus immediately goes on to say that as he does this, in fact, as a part of doing this, one of them will betray him. One of these disciples who have been with him for three years. But note again that this is not a shock to Jesus, not a hidden trap that has been sprung by sneaky schemers. This will happen, verse 22, as has been decreed, been determined from before the creation of the world. Excuse me. This betrayal for which Judas remains responsible and Satan is clearly complicit in is also completely under Jesus' control as he fulfills the predetermined plan of God, which all sounds so incredibly complicated and even contradictory. But what it does is it prevents us from making a whole range of wrong conclusions. Judas can't blame Satan, saying, the devil made me do it. He can't claim that he had no choice. He made the terrible decision to betray his Lord. As Jesus himself says, woe to that man. But we also can't conclude that God is left to react after the event. As far as we know, Judas is still at the table at this moment as Jesus speaks. And though Jesus has made clear that he knows exactly what Judas is up to, he doesn't stop him or prevent him. Actually, in other accounts, he facilitates Judas going out because even this betrayal is a part of God's plan. But though this must happen, 
Judas isn't excused for what he does. He betrays Jesus. And as the other disciples' reactions show, this is something that he should feel terrible about. It is in fact what da Vinci was trying to capture in his painting, the varied reactions of Jesus' disciples to Jesus' announcement that one of them would betray him. And yet, having just eaten the commemorative meal that Jesus put in place, isn't there an irony present here? That while one person, Judas, has a unique role in betraying, the other 11, all 11 of them, who are questioning who will be the one, will within hours of this all desert their Lord. And so rather than an idealistic happy ending, the Bible gives us a sad real-life account of what Jesus' disciples are like. That as we eat this meal, sometimes called communion, that good relationships with those around us who have just eaten with us are actually not always our experience. As da Vinci's painting captures so well that after we've eaten, we may hotly debate with those that we've just shared a meal with doubting their sincerity while assuming or even insisting upon our own. In fact, there may be even people here right now or people that come to your mind that you're avoiding, that you resent, that between you and them there is a war. This meal isn't magic. It doesn't automatically fix things that have taken place, that have broken. And yet, if we are willing to do the reflecting that this clearly intends for us to do, then this meal is a roadmap showing where we should all be headed, reconciliation into unhindered relationships with both God and others. It points out how that is even possible, a perfect lamb sacrificed for sin. It points out the need of every single one of us, a substitute, that dies in our place. Communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, call it what you will, it was one of the most hotly debated issues during and after the Reformation of the 1600s. Some even suggest the pronounced in Latin as the tradition uh, insisted it must be in order for it to be effective, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. In Latin, nobody understood what it meant. It became the magic words, hocus pocus, hoc es, corpus meum. Roman Catholic tradition insisted that only a priest who could claim their authority by unbroken connection to the apostles could say the magic words that made the meal effective, that in eating, grace was automatically given. And yet what meaning did Jesus give this meal? Clearly nothing magic takes place by eating bread and drinking wine. I can eat this commemorative meal daily for the next year and make absolutely no progress in godliness. I can eat and drink and stubbornly refuse to acknowledge that I'm a sinner in need of a perfect substitute. I can eat and drink and in practice reject the fellowship that it points to and has made possible. However regularly we eat, and drink this meal, may we do it in remembrance of Jesus. Not as a merely cognitive act, but applying the sacrifice of the King who gives his perfect life for his very imperfect subjects. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much that you understand us, you know our failings, and you know exactly what we need. And so you have provided us a meal to help us to understand what we need to know. You didn't give us a lecture or a sermon or a book to read. You gave us a meal by which we could remember and reflect on a regular and ongoing basis the incredible sacrifice that you have made for us. May we grow in our understanding of what that sacrifice was and may it bring about the change in us so that we become more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.